This is Storical, a podcast brought to you by Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive on the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is about a hard partying flapper who was as tender as the night. Welcome back to Storical. This is our second episode, but it's such a fun project. I already feel as though I've been doing this forever. Last month was the very first episode, and it was about Mary Shelley. If you haven't heard it yet, give it a listen. The people she knew, the tragedy she experienced, it's almost too out there to believe. All that said, if you have requests for people you'd like to see an episode on, please email me at hi at immortalperfumes.com. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you have historical fiction recommendations as well, like books, movies, podcasts, anything like that. All right, now that I've rambled for our first minute together, let's get back on track. Today, we're going to take a look at one of the most vivacious and maligned women in America's literary canon, Zelda Fitzgerald. Zelda's story is at once golden and beautiful, but also dark and tragic. She both lived in the shadow of her famous author husband, F. Scott Fitzgerald, while at the same time being an object of jealousy to him. I think history tends to take a really simplified view of Zelda, like, oh, she was just another drunk party girl who ended up having a breakdown, and that's it, end of story. It's certainly the way many pop culture interpretations of her have played out. See Woody Allen, but that's hardly a surprise. So for today, forget your 11th grade English teacher's hero worship of F. Scott, and let's save a waltz for Zelda, a writer and artist who refused to play second fiddle to a husband obsessed with appearances. Chapter one, Zelda Sayre. So far I'm finding that starting these out with an exploration of the parents and family really explains a lot about a person, and for Zelda, this is especially true. Her father was a serious man, known simply as Judge Sayre. Even his wife and children called him the judge. He was from a prominent Southern family that actually had roots in the North. The judge was well-respected and admired in their town of Montgomery, Alabama. He was appointed as an associate judge to the state Supreme Court, and this pay increase allowed him to provide a nice home for his wife and five children. The judge was a stable yet strict and distant force in his home. And I'm just going to say it, he wasn't a super interesting character. So instead, let's take a look at Zelda's mother, Minnie. Minnie, short for Minerva, was an extremely artistic woman. And I think you can see where I'm headed with that. As a teen, she regularly had poems published in the local newspapers and had her heart set on the stage. When she was 17, she met the future judge at a party and thought he was all well and good, but not interesting enough to keep her from a secret trip to Philadelphia she had planned. Under the guise of a visit to a friend, Minnie went to Philadelphia to audition for a play. And not just any play. The play was being produced by Georgia Drew. If that name sounds at all familiar to you, that's because Georgia Drew was the matriarch of the Drew Barrymore family of actors, of whom the current actress Drew Barrymore is also a member. Minnie was talented. She had a soprano voice and acting chops. She won the role. But her father found out about her deception and he was furious. 
He went to Philadelphia himself to bring her back home and, in no uncertain terms, told her to give up her dreams of the stage and settle down with a respectable man to become a wife and mother. She and the judge were married little more than a year later. Minnie kept her dreams and ambitions to herself and threw her heart into caring for her five children. She also channeled her artistic inclinations by singing in the church choir, gardening, and having books as her constant companions. For small town Montgomery, her artistic inclinations had her labeled an eccentric. Before Zelda came along, Minnie had five children, one of whom died, which put her in an awful depression that lasted for months. When she was 39 years old, she became pregnant and gave birth to Zelda in 1900. She gave her the name Zelda after a gypsy heroine in either the novels Zelda, A Tale of the Massachusetts Colony or Zelda's Fortune, although it's unclear which one she took it from. Zelda's elder siblings were already approaching their teen years by the time she was born, so as a result, she she was babied by Minnie. In fact, she was called baby by both of her parents throughout her life. And this is where we set our scene. A distant father who is judgmental and domineering. Elder siblings too old to be playmates or take an interest in their baby sister. And a mother whose dreams have been stifled in service to her husband's career. Chapter 2, Southern Belle. If you've heard that Zelda was something of a wild child, you are correct. The baby of the family had a cherubic face with bouncy golden curls, whereas the rest of her siblings had dark hair. Minnie's babying of Zelda led to all sorts of hijinks. Upon starting school at age six, Zelda decided she didn't like it and was permitted to stay home the entire year. She was known as the town prankster, and in one of her most audacious pranks, she called the fire department to report a child stuck on the roof, then proceeded to sit on the roof and await her own rescue. Minnie found her antics endearing, while the judge was much more stern with his daughter. Zelda passed her time hanging out with boys, preferring to swim, jump, and climb as opposed to participating in more traditional pursuits with her mother and sisters. She also took ballet lessons from age nine through her teen years and was considered an accomplished dancer. And you'll want to remember this because the ballet will become of grave importance later in her life. Zelda herself described her childhood as idyllic and repeatedly used sensory descriptors such as the smell of pear blossoms when describing her memories of home. When she turned 15, she became more restless. The boys whom she had always counted as her playmates started having changing attitudes toward her and competed for her attention. Later in her life, she worked on an autobiographical novel called Caesar's Things, which was unpublished at the time of her death. In it, she alluded to an incident with two of the boys from town she had known since childhood. In the novel, she wrote that they pressured her to go with them into the schoolyard late one night. They told her that if she wanted to remain popular, she'd do as they told her. She didn't explicitly state what happened apart from imagery, such as shadows and a splintery old swing. But F. Scott himself later remarked that Zelda had been seduced and blamed Minnie for taking rotten care of her daughter. She didn't herself ever talk about the incident as a source of trauma. However, after this, Zelda was forever changed. What had once just been the antics of a vivacious prankster now became more mature in nature. She developed a taste for gin, she started smoking, and was known for kissing and riding in cars with boys. She'd stay out late and wait for the scandalous tidbit. She danced cheek to cheek with boys at the country club and wore a flesh-colored bathing suit at the beach, which was quite scandalous at the time. Judge Sarah was fed up with his daughter's rebellious ways. He would lock her in her bedroom, but Zelda would just sneak out through the window, sometimes with Minnie's assistance. 
Zelda and her antics became a source of gossip in Montgomery, as did those of her childhood friend, Tallulah Bankhead, who would later be a friend to Zelda in New York and would also go on to be a Hollywood starlet in her own right. While other girls would have suffered from ruined reputations, Zelda had the safety of her father's importance to shield her from serious trouble. For all of this confidence, rebellion, and vivacity, at the end of the day, Zelda was a big fish in a small pond. She was pretty sheltered in small town Montgomery. But all of this would change, however, when the horrors of World War I landed on America's shores. Chapter three, The Beautiful and the Damned. In 1917, a young F. Scott Fitzgerald dropped out of Princeton and joined the army. While at the university, his social life and writing ambitions got in the way of his academics. However, Scott was intensely afraid of dying in the war without having published a book. He hastily wrote his first novel called The Romantic Egoist, which was rejected by his dream publisher, Scribner's. Scribner's did see potential in him and invited him to revise and resubmit. Scott was soon stationed at Camp Sheridan, which was located outside of Montgomery. While waiting on his deployment, he worked on the Romantic Egoist and attended social events in Montgomery. At one of the country club dances, he saw Zelda, his golden girl. It was love at first sight for both of them, but Zelda particularly liked that Scott talked to her about interesting, unique topics that the other boys in Montgomery didn't engage with her. Scott saw in Zelda a confidence and certainty that was intoxicating to him. She told him, men love me because I'm pretty and they're always afraid of mental wickedness and men love me because I'm clever and they're always afraid of my prettiness. One or two have even loved me because I'm lovable. And then of course I was acting. But Zelda and Scott's love for each other was no act, no matter how vicious they became to each other later. During their courtship, Scott would take iced tea with her on the veranda of her home, and the two would go for long walks in which he would listen with interest to all the details of her life. Despite their feelings for each other, Zelda happily danced and flirted with other men, enjoying getting a rise out of a jealous Scott. He continued working on the romantic egoist, and the book's heroine clearly was modeled on Zelda. He sent her chapters to read and she was smitten, but Scott soon had to depart training camp for the war. But lucky for him and for literary history, armistice was declared before he ever had to see any action. While waiting for his discharge papers, Zelda felt so sure of their future together, she consented to making love for the first time, despite her reputation. After this, Scott went back to New York to make his fortune as a writer, arranging for Zelda to stay home in Montgomery and await his success. Zelda was initially giddy with anticipation, but the longer they were apart, the more cruel she became in her letters. She flaunted her flirtations with other men and Scott grew so worried of losing her that he made a trip to Montgomery to beg her to marry him. For Zelda, this just made him look weak and she flat out refused him. Wounded Scott returned to New York and Zelda went on with her flirtations and parties. She had expected Scott to write her seeking to get back together, but he didn't write except to inform her that the romantic egoist retitled This Side of Paradise had been accepted for publication. Zelda invited him down, but Scott waited, racking up more short story sales and waiting until he was in a position of power. He wrote to one of his friends that he would rather see Zelda dead than married to another man. He also said, I fell in love with her courage, her sincerity, and her flaming self-respect. I love her, and that's the beginning and end of everything. 
This Side of Paradise was published in March of 1920 to tremendous success. We're talking like, I think it was something like 20,000 copies in the first couple of weeks. One month later, Zelda and Scott were married at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Fame came at them hard and fast. Chapter four, Baby Vamp. New York wasn't ready for the Fitzgeralds and Zelda wasn't ready for New York. While she was the golden girl of Montgomery, her frilly trousseau laden with ruffles was seen as quaint and provincial in glamorous New York. And Scott was a man who valued appearances and designer brands above all else. He said, no sooner does a man marry his reproachless ideal than he becomes intensely self-conscious about her. He encouraged her to go shopping with Scott's friend to set her up in the latest New York fashions. Zelda felt intensely embarrassed about this and resolved to distinguish herself with her own style. She cut her hair into a short flapper bob and went on a spending spree, arming herself with finery. And the effect was much to both Scott and Zelda's delight. The poet Dorothy Parker remarked, they both looked as though they stepped out of the sun. Their youth was so striking. They were photographed wherever they went and their picture turned up in all the newspapers. They were both drinking and partying hard, Zelda even jumping into a fountain one evening. The pair lived at the opulent Biltmore Hotel and their suite was the setting for many raucous parties, mostly just consisting of Scott's friends from Princeton. Zelda loved being one of the few women in the room. She still preferred to run with the boys and as the first to get married, Scott was eager to show her off. Small interjection here. I, in reading about her, I really wonder how much, like how many of Zelda's future troubles would have been eased if she had had a strong group of female friends. Ugh, something to think about. The jealousy of Scott's friends was especially apparent in the meticulous diary of Alexander McKaig. One entry says, called on Scott Fitz and his bride. Latter, temperamental, small town, Southern Belle. Chews gum, shows knees. I do not think marriage can succeed. So that was a vote of confidence. A recurring event in the marriage of Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald was moving to try to leave their problems behind and get a fresh start. When the party life of New York City got to be too toxic, both to Scott's writing as well as their relationship, they headed to Long Island, hoping for a reprieve. Scott wrote, we scarcely know anymore who we were, and we hadn't a notion what we were. Instead, they were immersed in the party scene of millionaires, and their friends, who used to come over for an evening's party, were now spending entire weekends with them. Now, something we haven't discussed yet that is a big piece of the Zelda puzzle is that of her diaries and letters. Part of Zelda's charm were her sometimes irreverent, sometimes deep turns of phrase. Scott had seen her diaries back in Montgomery and had used them as inspiration for the heroine in this side of paradise. More than one person commented that Scott had married the feminine ideal that he wrote of in his novels. Zelda's role as muse and inspiration was at this point appealing to her, but would lead to trouble further down the road. Around this time, Zelda became pregnant with the couple's only child, a daughter named Scotty. She had the baby in St. Paul, where, where Scott's family lived, and she felt profound disappointment in not only the baby's sex, but how dull her life was there. They went back to New York, staying at the plaza for the publication of The Beautiful and the Damned. Zelda found that she wasn't the type to be satisfied solely with keeping house and child. She became pregnant again, but she couldn't handle the idea of having another baby so soon and decided to abort. Scott obtained abortion pills for her and the two never discussed it again. 
She was invited to write a review of The Beautiful and the Damned as a way of drumming up publicity and intrigue. Remember, she and Scott were celebrities at this point. The piece itself was witty and sarcastic. There was even a dig at Scott for mining her journals. Over the next year, this led to several more articles and short stories for which she was paid a respectable 10 cents a word. Her eulogy on the flapper appeared in Metropolitan Magazine. She earned $1,300 for her efforts that year, but suffered a huge blow to her ego when her story, Our Own Movie Queen, was published under Scott's name. George Jean Nathan, one of Scott's early publishers, was a friend and read her diaries. He wrote, they interested me so greatly that in my capacity as a magazine editor, I later made her an offer for them. When I informed her husband, he said he could not permit me to publish them since he gained a lot of inspiration from them and wanted to use parts of them in his novel and short stories. I just hear that and I feel so angry for her. But Zelda didn't put up a fight and she didn't say anything on it. By 1923, they were $5,000 in debt despite an income of $36,000 which was a lot, we're talking the 1920s. They were stuck in a pattern of fighting before they would make up. And at this point in their marriage, Scott's writing seemed to depend on this toxic back and forth. Desperate to start fresh and live more cheaply, they rented out their house and used that seed money to start a new life in Paris. Chapter five, The Lost Generation. If you're gonna run away from your demons, I can see why 1920s Paris would seem appealing. Post-war, the dollar was strong, and Zelda and Scott could live like royalty, which they did. New city, new parties. They started hanging with American expatriates Sarah and Gerald Murphy. The Murphys knew everyone, and introduced Zelda and Scott to everyone from Picasso and Stravinsky to Hemingway. But Scott needed to finish his latest novel, A Draft of the Great Gatsby. They went to the French Riviera and rented a house on the Mediterranean. Scott tried to stay sober and stuck to a strict writing schedule. While Zelda loved to swim and felt free by the ocean, she quickly grew bored without an audience. Around that time, a group of aviators began frequenting the beach. At first, the group hung out together at their house or at local restaurants and bars. A young French aviator named Edouard Josan quickly became a regular companion for Zelda. He danced with her when Scott wouldn't and stayed with her for hours on the beach. Scott began to grow suspicious when Josan started flying aerial stunts above their house. Josanne and Zelda both denied it, but based on her later writing, it is probable that their affair was sexual. Scott locked her in a room and told her that Josanne could come and claim her like a man. After a few months, their relationship had calmed and Josanne had disappeared from their lives. Zelda also began to court danger. She grabbed the wheel once while Scott was driving. In a later incident, she threw herself down the stairs when she caught Scott paying too much attention to the dancer Isadora Duncan. Wanting to save more money, they traveled to Rome, where several things happened. Scott began a flirtation with an actress shooting Ben-Hur, which led to violent quarrels. Zelda had a series of pelvic infections that seriously dampened her mood and overall health. And last, she fell in with a group of women artists on Capri, where she dedicated herself to painting. Scott was angry that she had a new hobby and new friends, because of course he was. And he devoted himself to power through self-doubt to complete Gatsby. And here's an example of how much they needed each other despite the toxic nature of the relationship. Scott's editors didn't understand Gatsby, but Zelda did. She drew pictures of Gatsby to help Scott see him more clearly and even helped him lock down the title, rejecting Scott's wordier attempts. The book was published to great acclaim and Zelda and Scott returned to Paris, a happy golden couple once again. 
They met the Picassos a few times, but Picasso himself found Zelda to be too strange. It was around this time that Scott befriended a then unknown Ernest Hemingway. And my dear listeners, I delight in telling you that Zelda hated Hemingway. She told him to his face, no one is as masculine as you pretend to be. She saw through his machismo and called him a poser. With Hemingway, Scott's drinking raged out of control. She said of The Sun Also Rises, and please excuse this one instance of profane language, it's nothing but bullfighting, bullslinging, and bullshit. Oh, Zelda gives me life with that quote. I love it. The feeling was mutual, and Hemingway had an intense dislike for Zelda. He believed she was jealous of Scott's success and blamed Zelda for hampering Scott's creativity. Ironic, considering how heavily he relied on her journals. Hemingway also insinuated to Scott that Zelda might be a lesbian since she was spending so much time at the Rue Jacob, a women's artist colony. This guy, I swear. Zelda also wasn't a fan of Gertrude Stein. Stein had her famous salon in which she talked art with her circle of famous artist friends, but all the wives were relegated to another room. This infuriated Zelda, who by this point fiercely wanted a vocation that was all her own outside of Scott. Scott's drinking was getting out of control. His face was turning green, started getting puffy. He was having a difficult time completing his latest book, and even though he hated Hollywood, he jumped at the opportunity to write a comedy script. So desperate was he for money and distraction. Zelda felt nervous about returning to America, and in Hollywood, her insecurities grew. The silent era flappers were talented, accomplished, and in total control of their lives. Soon, Scott developed a serious infatuation on a 17-year-old actress, and Zelda railed against him. Scott responded with a crushing blow. The 17-year-old was talented and making a way for herself, whereas Zelda, at 26, had achieved nothing. Chapter 6, Beauty in the Breakdown. Before we dive into this final chapter of Zelda's life, I want to offer a trigger warning. There's description of a mental breakdown coming, so if that's something that might bring up painful memories, skip ahead about three minutes to the next segment. Zelda became increasingly restless and desperate to find purpose in her life. When she devoted her time to writing and painting, she felt eased. But then Scott would get upset as he didn't like his status threatened. Remembering her childhood love of dance, Zelda became obsessed with the idea of becoming a professional ballerina. By this time, they were living in a large house in Delaware, and she installed a mirror and ballet bar to practice her steps. Music from an old Victrola would waft through the house. Zelda would spend as many as eight hours a day practicing, much to the chagrin of Scott, who found the noise irritating as he tried to write. In Philadelphia, which was a short train ride away, Zelda found Catherine Littlefield, the new director of the opera chorus. She began training and Zelda's obsession with the ballet grew. She spent all of her waking hours practicing. After a few months, she participated in a performance. In the audience sat Scott with his cousin Celia. The performance had Zelda dancing with other younger, more highly trained ballerinas. To Scott and Celia, she looked terrible and amateur in comparison. Zelda felt exhilarated and thought she had done well, but Scott was embarrassed. The drunken fights became more frequent and Zelda developed serious eczema. Her anxiety heightened, and on more than one occasion, she was so hysterical that doctors had to give her morphine. After a particularly vicious fight, Scott hit her. Zelda's sister was a guest at the time and tried to get Zelda to leave Scott for good, but she refused. Instead, they moved back to Paris, and Zelda begged a Russian ballerina to take her on as a student. Lubov Igorova had once, once danced for the Tsar's Imperial Ballet. 
Zelda believed that if she could learn from Igorova, she would make it as a professional ballerina. In Igorova's class, she pushed her body to the limits. She was increasingly erratic and hysterical. She spent much of the day hallucinating. Later writing, Suddenly last spring, I began to see all red while I worked, or I saw no colors. I could not bear to look out of the window, for sometimes I saw humanity as a bottle of ants. Zelda also sometimes heard voices. Morphine was her only respite, but the morphine was causing more harm than good. She was offered a solo to dance in the opera Aida, which did do something to boost her ballet confidence, but she didn't accept, as she would have had to live in Italy on her own to participate. During this time, Zelda was also commissioned several articles for the magazine College Humor. Scott told his publisher, Max Perkins, Zelda's style has a strange, haunting, and evocative quality that is absolutely new. He also said that Zelda was a great original. Her flame, at its most intense, burned brighter than mine. Zelda's mania became worse, and she became suicidal and a genuine danger to herself. She was taken to a clinic in Switzerland, then transferred to a psychiatric hospital, Prangens, with the renowned Dr. Floral. During her time there, she wrote desperately to Scott, believing that he had answers for her. He used some of these letters verbatim in Tender as the Night. Zelda's mood was still erratic, but the clinic was helping. At one point, Scott asked her doctor if she was well enough to revise and correct one of his, his short stories. Her eczema seemed to ebb and flow, and it was a predictor of her mental state. It flared up when she was in distress and lessened when she was happy. She recovered well enough to leave Prangens 13 months later, and her discharge paper said that her breakdown was a reaction to her feelings of inferiority, primarily toward her husband. Zelda and Scott headed straight to Paris and sailed back to America. The experience left her ha haggard and aged, no longer the golden girl she had once been. But unfortunately, she relapsed a few months later and was taken to another clinic. There, she had a burst of creativity and wrote her only novel, Save Me the Waltz, in just two months. When she finished, she wrote straight to Max Perkins and asked for his thoughts. He was impressed and told Scott he was interested in the manuscript. Scott was absolutely furious, though. She hadn't shown it to him at all. He felt resentful that he had spent so many years trying to help her get better to the detriment of his career. And now, not only was she invading his territory, but her novel was similar to the one he was working on. Probably since he was using her letters as inspiration. Just gonna enter a guess. After a period of cooling down and making Zelda revise extensively, he wrote back to Perkins and said he wouldn't mind her book being published so long as it was not discussed with Zelda. He said he feared it would go to her head and impede her recovery. He signed the final contract for $5,000 and stipulated that half the book's royalties would go to pay back Scott's debts. Save Me the Waltz was published in 1932 to mixed reviews. Many argued that it was highly stylized, but not proofread or edited well. Zelda would be released again this time with a strict schedule of writing and painting. The rigidity of the routine kept her well, but it graded Scott. After this, she was in and out of hospitals, and Scott moved to Hollywood to be a scriptwriter. He began an affair with Sheila Graham, a gossip columnist, but still wrote to Zelda often. In 1938, after a fight with Graham, he went to visit Zelda. They went on a spontaneous trip to Cuba, and it was an absolute disaster. It was the last time that they would see each other, as Scott died two years later in 1940. Zelda missed his funeral. She remained in the hospital, no longer wealthy, and her friends were long gone. One night, as she awaited electroshock therapy in 1948, Zelda was killed by a fire. The door to her room had been locked.
Chapter 7, Save Me the Waltz. Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald were far from perfect people. As you may have noticed, I barely mentioned their child Scotty because she was a blip on the melodrama of their lives. With that said, full disclosure, I was a huge fan of F. Scott Fitzgerald, like to the point that my bachelorette party was Gatsby-themed, don't act surprised, but the older I get, the more frustrated I get with his depictions of women and just how he carried himself and treated Zelda. Zelda clearly was no saint, but I have great empathy for what she was up against and reacting to, and I personally wonder if she would have done better if she had found a vocation or purpose. I feel like if they were alive today, the two of them, they would totally be like YouTube stars or Instagram influencers. It also would have been helpful if she had been correctly diagnosed. At the time, she was labeled schizophrenic, but modern doctors speculate that she suffered, what she suffered from was more likely in the bipolar umbrella. And I made a comment to my husband that I really wish she had been born now because most of those problems, they just wouldn't have been a thing. And he sagely responded, well, couldn't you say that about anyone in history? Probably. Very wise. Okay, so let's talk books and media. Here's the fun part. Starting with nonfiction, if you want an exhaustive look at Zelda's entire life, we're talking interviews with people who knew her, the best place to go is Zelda by Nancy Milford. This biography was written in 1970 and was the first time that anything had come out that was sympathetic to Zelda's side of the story. Up until that point, she'd really been Yoko Ono'd. A more fun biography that I highly recommend is called Flappers, Six Women of a Dangerous Generation by Judith Mackerel. What I like about this book is that it's a biography of six other really interesting women, and it kind of finds ways of tying them together. Each woman gets two chapters, one dealing with early life and the other dealing with later life. Zelda's friend Tallulah Bankhead is featured, and so is Josephine Baker. The last nonfiction book I have for you is more of a true crime format. In Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, Sarah Churchwell argues that a sensational murder case that took place on Long Island was the inspiration for Gatsby. I only had time to skim this one, but I found it really fascinating. It's more of a look at Scott, but there's some definite interesting tidbits about Zelda strewn in too. Moving on to fiction. Okay, so if you're Team Zelda all the way, Or if you're Team Scott, but open to being seduced by her story, you have to start with Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald by Therese Ann Fowler. This book is told in the first person and was probably the first instance where I thought, wait a second, maybe F. Scott wasn't the greatest. Maybe his wife wasn't some nag who ruined his career. This depiction of Zelda very much makes her the hero and it probably forgives some of her more major transgressions, but it's one of the few told from her point of view, and it's a really fun book. That is also the book that inspired the Amazon TV series that starred Christina Ricci. In terms of television, it's pretty soapy, but I really enjoyed watching it because seeing characters as flesh and blood people really humanizes them for me. I was fine with Ricci's performance as Zelda, and because of its source material, it's definitely pro-Zelda 100%. The costumes and set design alone are worth it with this show. The only major thing I didn't like is that they didn't renew it, so it kind of stops mid-story and you don't really get her later years. Another novelization I enjoyed was Beautiful Fools by R. Clifton Spargo. Remember how I told you that Zelda and Scott had a disastrous trip to Cuba? Well, this book imagines what happened. It's third person, so you don't get into anyone's head, but the author did a good job of kind of recreating the language of the time. 
It's uncomfortable though. You're basically thrown into an intimate setting with these two bombastic personalities at the height of their cruelty to one another. You can also, of course, go straight to the source and read Zelda's book, Save Me the Waltz. I found this on that uh, Libby library app that I mentioned in the last episode. The book is challenging because again, she wasn't a trained writer, but her writing is haunting and very sensual in her descriptions. It's semi-autobiographical, so you do get a bit on her mindset from reading it. The last depiction I wanna talk about is Zelda's portrayal in Midnight in Paris. I used to be a fan of Woody Allen's movies and Midnight in Paris came out at a time in my life where I was basically Owen Wilson's character. So that movie was very special to me. Having since learned what kind of a person Allen is, I can no longer watch or recommend his movies, but for this episode, I decided to watch the movie again. Someone bought it for me as a wedding gift and I hadn't seen it since it first came out. I still really love this movie, but wow, watching it and specifically focusing on Zelda as an older adult was eye-opening for me. The actress who played Zelda was Alison Pill and F. Scott was Tom Hiddleston, who has since become my celebrity crush, but at the time I was completely unimpressed. Anyway, Alison Pill did a phenomenal job with the accent, the mannerisms, her disdain for Hemingway, but ultimately the movie takes the traditional view of Zelda. Hemingway goes on at length on why she's the worst and prevents Scott from his work like Scott isn't a grown man who can't control his own actions. And they show her having a bit of a suicidal breakdown, which, I mean, they calm her and they talk her out of it, but just the way it was done, I, I feel like it just kind of reinforces that boys club simplified view of her. And if you don't want to watch the whole movie, you can definitely YouTube the clips of Zelda. Well, that's all I have on Zelda. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you go out and read more about this fascinating lady. Check out the show notes for links of all the books and shows that I mentioned and join me again next month when we take a look at a writer whose unrequited love gave us one of the most beloved heroines of all time. <laughs>